uh, I'm very practical. And this, so this was never, my study's never been like the philosophy of, well, what is happiness? Let's theorize it. Like I enjoy some of that and it's fun, but ultimately like when I taught my class at Alabama, when I coach people, when I do trainings, it's like, how do you take an individual and help them to experience greater happiness? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing my friend Jackson Kirchis, or Jackson Kirkus, depending on if you are a human or Siri when you're trying to text Jackson when you're driving. Anyway, miscellaneous details. Jackson and I met as students at the University of Alabama, where Jackson actually taught a course while he was still a student on how to build happiness habits. That was part of the Honors College, and unfortunately, I could not take it because it conflicted with a required course in my final semester. Sad about that to this day. Jackson is a happiness teacher, a happiness coach, a consultant on the subject of happiness, and a speaker for a variety of organizations where he runs large-scale training workshops, outdoor, nature-based happiness workshops, and a whole lot more. Jackson is also a prolific writer on the subject of happiness. You can find his work on Reddit, Twitter, LinkedIn, his own Substack, his own website, and he has a book coming out soon. In this conversation, we discuss happiness, if you can believe that, from the perspective of some of the leading academic theories, some of Jackson's favorite personal theories and observations from studying the subject with such depth over the past five or so years, uh, his experiences living as a Zen monk, some of the steps he's taken in his career becoming a thought leader on the subject, one more time, of happiness, and uh, as always, a whole lot more. For whatever reason, my house was scorching hot the day we recorded this, and I just said, you know what? I'm going to wear a tank top. I don't know if that's unprofessional or, lot, or not. You be the judge of that. Leave a comment one way or the other, or just don't. Maybe I'm the only one who's going to think about it. I'm probably the only one thinking about it. Anyway, lots of gems in this conversation, as always. I hope you have a blast listening to it. So without further ado, here's my chat with my friend, Jackson. Jackson, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Without Kyle today, happens sometimes. Thanks, Lewis. That's uh, it's been a long time coming. You know, as friends, I uh, felt like it's kind of like inviting yourself over for dinner, right? Like I was like, when when's this sob gonna have me on a show? But I'm not gonna ask. So I, I've clearly crossed the threshold into notoriety. So I appreciate that. Sounds like you're letting <laughs> you know an external circumstance be a, be a little too important to you, but not really. Uh, <laughs> a while ago. You had asked me, among many other friends, I imagine, why they were your friends. What did you learn from doing that? Yeah. So, well, I have so many just strange happiness gimmicks. Uh, I'm trying. Oh, I, okay. I remember that one. So, and I say gimmick kind of jokingly because I'm just hard on myself. But that one came from Simon Sinek. And it was this process of how do you figure out like what to do with your life, basically, which I think is something we all struggle with, very related to happiness. And that was one sort of short practice he said is ask your friends why they're friends with you and sort of compile their answers. And as you do that, you sort of hone in on your signature strengths your unique strength. So we don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole, but that's this idea from psychology generally that we're at our best when we're using our character strengths that are unique to us. 
And so you do this process with a few people, especially friends that kind of you're really close with and vibe with, and they can be honest with you. And you start to get ideas about who you are, what your core values are, what you're exceptional at. And I think you, Lewis said something to me to the effect of like, you're really good at reminding me to prioritize happiness and kind of nerdy, right? And so it's like, well, yeah, I'm a happiness researcher kind of. So it seems I'm pretty aligned on that. But yeah, that's something, you know, people, you can try it with your friends at home, family, whatever. And it's like self investigation, self discovery a little bit. Are there any other kind of specific takeaways? Maybe that set the direction for what you chose to work on or put more or less emphasis on after receiving a good batch of answers. It, so I'm lucky in that. Well, so stepping back, I'm basically uh, like this unique combination of an incredibly neurotic overachiever meets Zen monk contemplative guy. So, so I've done they're like obsessed over this self-inquiry in a lot of ways. And so for me, I had already had this pretty solid idea of I'm basically like a, a learner archetype. Like I love to collect information. And then my kind of shadow type is I like to win people over and teach. And so I kind of had that framed up. And then so for me, it was a lot of confirmation, right? you saying, oh, you, it's great that you encouraged me to prioritize happiness. Maybe other friends being like, oh, you're, uh, you know, you're really thorough and inquisitive, right? So, yeah, I mean, I can obviously, maybe we'll get to that talk more broadly about what's influenced me. But in terms of this specific exercise, it sort of aligned with the strengths I'd already thought of, which is this, uh, I just love to learn. I'm pretty much a nerd and I love to win people over and share ideas with them. Yeah. I don't think that it's always, you know, the outcome of some explorative exercise to like find something new. I think that is often a distraction. It's nice to be like, here's other people telling you that what you're doing is already in many ways, having the effect you want it to have. Yeah. And it's a difficult balance. That's something I struggled with when I lived as a Zen monk is I was like, okay, I'm here. And I, I think my life's just awesome. Like, I think it's pretty good, but like, I feel like I should have had some weird awakening and my Zen teachers were like, trust me. All right. If your life's going really well right now, like there will be a time when it's not. <laughs> okay. So don't <laughs> like overthink it. Uh, and just say, yeah, sometimes it's, it's, you don't want to get caught in kind of a, uh, it was like confirmation bias or self-delusion. So it's a very fine line, but it's like, no, it's good. It's good. If you're doing what you should be doing, right? investigate it. But it, you know, you don't always have to have some radical waking up or something. What do you miss about Zen life? It's almost been one year since you finished ish. Well, it's been exactly one year. How crazy is that? August 4th. I just got a Snapchat memory this morning with me and my buzz cut with the San Francisco Zen Center filter. And I actually have a, a name for that Snapchat feature. I call it the existential crisis generator. Um, so some people may resonate with that, but it, uh, I guess, what do I miss? Well, the word that comes to mind maybe more than anything is spaciousness. And that's obviously not referring to like physical space, but more so like the pace of your life. I think probably a lot of your listeners are pretty high achieving types, pretty intellectual. 
And I think the biggest thing I struggle with is sometimes I feel like I'm watching my life on like 1.2x speed. Like it's not like fast forward, I'm just, you know, out of it, but it's like, hey, it's a little fast. As Zen centers, you might imagine, it's sort of maybe turned down to 0.8. <laughs> and it's like this very single-minded, you're basically meditating all day, whether it's formal meditation or more working practice. And so there's just a lot of spaciousness in your life and in your mind of your meals are taken care of, right? Like all these little things that are sort of these cognitive pressures, that even maybe really small things that are just little worries, things I have to keep on my mind that you don't have to worry about. It's kind of openness of mind. So that's the main thing. The also quick one I'll touch on is surprisingly while I was out there, you know, almost as much as like Zen and meditation and all that stuff we can get into, I think the one thing I really value is also is doing tangible work in the real world. I basically worked as a janitor for the first few months and then as like a maintenance person. And very satisfying to not have this bunch of knowledge, intellectual, ambiguous tasks. Just say, oh, today we're going to get up and cut some wood, you know, fix this broken faucet. Uh, so it's just very simple, spacious life. Do some sweeping. A lot of sweeping. Yeah, I think one of the red flags that I've noticed in myself is digital dreaming. I think that's like such a sign that you're just way too digital in your life. Like if you're having dreams and like the dream is not about engaging with the physical world and like in the dream you're on your computer or like you're interacting with the web browser or you're like mm -hmm. reading a text conversation. I don't know if that happens to you, but for me, that's like, that's a sign that, you know, I don't know like the science of dreaming too well, but I think it's, you know, some combination of remixing previous experiences, rejecting future experiences. And obviously that's going to be a combination of your inputs. And if the percentage is so high of your day spent on screen and your headspace is given to like on, on screen activities, that's like, I'd say more often than not, I feel like I dream in terms of like digital based interactions, like hype, like reading a hypothetical Twitter feed. And this sounds terrible. I'm saying it out loud and it's that I've at least identified uh, it as a red flag, but like I have like a text conversation or like reading an email and like very cognitive, very verbal and uh, explicit email dreams, which I think, mm. you know, I don't know what you dream. What did you dream about at the Zen center? Were your dreams different versus well, your so life outside the Zen center? So this is going to be a pretty bad review of the Zen Center in some way. I don't know why this is. Well, this is on that one. But this one, uh, yeah, so sleeping did change a lot in that I had quite a few more experiences of sleep paralysis and night terrors. Uh, don't know why. So this is not something that's common to me. For your listeners who don't know, sleep paralysis, if you've ever had that where you're kind of semi-awake, but you can't move your body, and you're kind of like, what the hell's going on? Well, if that ever happens to you, just remain calm and don't open your eyes. Because if you do, you probably have a night terror, which is different from a nightmare because it's an actual hallucination. I th Maybe, then this is one hypothetical. So there are some studies out there that show that meditators actually sleep less common myth you think oh i'm gonna start practicing mindfulness get really into it and i'll be so relaxed that i'll sleep like a baby all the time and it's not necessarily that your sleep quality is worse but a lot of advanced meditators you talk to them and they say oh, i only sleep six or seven hours a night because you're cultivating that awareness and that wakefulness right that you actually kind of have maybe a higher degree of alertness during sleep so i think that's my hypothesis is that 
especially in Zen meditation is not like this deep breathing relaxation. It's uh, one Zen teacher I spend time with talked about. It's like a, if you imagine like a Doberman dog, when you give it a set command and it's like perked up sitting there, but it's like this ball of like potential energy, just waiting to unleash. It's like, that's Zazen. So you're training that all day, kind of increasing your alertness and your wakefulness. And I think maybe that, creates more potential for those sort of strange sleep experiences. That's very fascinating. Um, let's transition now. Different different line of questioning, Zen Center, yeah. regular life. What are you trying to do to, what are like your main ways that you're currently trying to explore this kind of personal professional mission of happiness? You write about it, you're running in-person boot camps, you're running nature-based things. Like what's uh, kind of one paying, helping you pay the bills right now, practically really useful. And what do you like want to be, if you could spend the majority of your time on one component of happiness research, cause it, it's in many ways, a very intellectual exercise, right? You have the academic theories, you have the research papers, you have this clinical studies, and there's also just like the pretty casual workshop where you just go to a yoga class or you take people on a hike. Uh, so what's kind of the practical, like applying this and helping you pay the bills with being this teacher and this lecturer, but also like what is ideal kind of theoretically long-term slash somewhat present day. Yeah. Well, long-term is basically my thing is like, like I said, I'm, I'm a happiness nerd because it's like, what else am I going to study? This is it. This is the question. So to me, my long-term vision is basically, okay, well, how can I study happiness? Right. I want to be happier. I'm interested in this. And it's sort of like along the way I've realized like, ah, shit, well, I'm going to have to help people if I want to <laughs> make a living doing this, right? Like very inconvenient. I can't just sit and read books all day. So the big picture is like, I want to be able to make a living teaching about happiness. And what's important with that is uh, I'm very practical. And this, so this was never, my study has never been like the philosophy of, well, what is happiness? Let's theorize it. Like I enjoy some of that and it's fun, but ultimately like when I taught my class at Alabama, when I coach people, when I do trainings, it's like, how do you take an individual and help them to experience greater happiness? And same thing for me. I want to, it's like, can you be the player or the coach, right? The coach is like the intellectual. He knows all the mechanics. The player is the one playing. Like I want to experience happiness. So getting back to your question, that's kind of the big picture. But what I've been focusing on right now under this category of teaching is basically you have like kind of classes. So I will do, like you said, some sort of like workshops, uh, a lot of things on like mindfulness with that. So I did offer a class through a yoga studio that was pretty popular. Uh, then we have this sort of training and consulting bucket. So a lot of that's with businesses and organizations because there's this whole kind of consensus now. And I think the mainstream starting to understand that like, it sounds like common sense maybe, but particularly for knowledge workers, like they have to be happy in order to be effective and be productive. And so that's one example, like you touched on, I'm working on a consulting project right now with a, a battalion of the U.S. military. Uh, so doing sort of that training consulting. And then the final one is coaching. Uh, so I kind of think of it as I, I often call it habits-based coaching. But it's sort of like executive coaching, maybe for people who aren't executives yet. Uh, these, these high achieving intellectual types, maybe kind of our age, 
right? And it's like, how do you develop habits for a better work life? Right? And those are, I can touch on some stories with that, but it was basically, and you said writing and producing content and stuff, just general, my uh, newsletter is, yeah, I think it's great. Um, but yeah, so speaking, kind of training, consulting, and then the coaching. How did you kind of bootstrap those first couple of gigs? Because I think a lot of people have like an intellectual passion and don't really know where to where to take it profitably mm-hmm. or for any amount of money. Yes. Well, how do you get the yoga studio to to say, come, yeah, like you just pitch yourself and you just have a big smile. And they're like, you look happy. You probably know a thing or two. Let's just go for it. Yeah. Is it more complicated? Uh, it's not. I think that one of the big things I struggled with, and I think a lot of intelligent, dare I say I'm intelligent sometimes, uh, people struggle with is like you see a lot of complexity and sometimes you take a very circuitous route or you think of all these contingencies and things you can do, but it's like, what's the most linear path? I constantly try to remind myself that pretty much all of my happiness, uh, success, when you think of like the practical side, has come from get in front of people and make them an offer get in front of people, make them an offer, get, I'll say it one more time for the folks listening, get in front of people and make them an offer. So, uh, and I have another specific thing for this, but yeah, something, so an example of that would be one of my friends, he's a younger guy, uh, but he's really successful in sales. And so he has his own sales office. So I say, Hey guys, uh, Shane, can I come do an event there and speak to your team? And you just, just cover my travel. Right, a few hundred dollars and you know you go out there and do your talk your pitch and that's how i got one of my first coaching clients uh, yoga studio one and another so this is kind of a related note I, I think leveraging like second or third degree kind of loose ties can be valuable so this was a yoga studio that i started going to in january went for a couple months just going and talking to the instructor one day, I was like, yeah, well, I lived as a Zen monk. I study happiness. And she's like, oh, my God, you got to do something here. So she basically pitched me. Right? And then we just charged people at, at the door. So those are that's the basic offer. But then, Lewis, what I want to do is share a, a more particular strategy I use, the, the accelerator idea. Right. You remember that? So final insight on this I had when you think about how do you take something you're passionate about, entrepreneurial, intellectual venture, whatever, and make it more real? Is I found this common theme, particularly in like the intellectual thought leader type space, that all of these big names had what I call an accelerator. So that's something like if you think about Tony Robbins, he actually started out helping promote Jim Rohn. He was kind of like a Tony Robbins type person before Tony Robbins. Uh, You think about how bands make a name for themselves, right? They go on tour with this really well-known band and they're just little, but they get that exposure. I started to notice that pattern. I said, I need to find my big band. I need to find an accelerator. And I just started looking up happiness people. So I looked at speakers bureaus. I looked at just Googling like happiness research, blah, blah, blah. And on a speakers bureau page, I found my current business partner, Paul Christmer, who's kind of like a few steps ahead of me in terms of being a happiness thought leader, consultant speaker type. And I just said like, hey, I want to get involved, kind of like an apprentice type thing. And um, so whatever realm you're in, you can follow a similar playbook. But for me, it's, he, you know, I reached out and 
thankfully I really impressed him and we got along in a lot of ways. And now we're more business partners than maybe me being like an intern. But that model, I think is incredibly valuable because that's one of the few ways that you can actually skip steps in this life, right? If you think about the exponential curve, those first few years suck, very flat part of the curve. Like how can you skip over that flat part, right? What were some of your offers to him to be helpful? Because I think a lot of people just like will send people an email that's like, hey, can I help you? And they're like, I mean, probably not. Like, I don't know if you're good at anything. <laughs> I don't know if you're smart. You're probably just going to make my life harder. Yeah. Well, I don't remember exactly what I said to him. I think, and this could be maybe something that actually was not a great idea, but I think I framed it more as an open-ended conversation. Like, hey, can we have 20 minutes to talk about this, whatever? And I think you want to vary that based on how big of a reach it is, right? Like this, you know, Paul's very successful, has his own business, but it's not like I reached out to Warren Buffett or something, right? The key to making this work is finding someone that's kind of like a few steps ahead of you. But I framed it as kind of open-ended and I think it's almost better to, you know, maybe you have in your playbook a couple obvious things. Like for me, I could say, hey, I'm, I've done stuff with some Google ads or I really enjoy writing. I can contribute content to you. Uh, but for him, I kind of just framed it as, well, well, like, what are you working on? And maybe you ask them in an email beforehand, is there anything you're working on? And for him, it actually started with, he's like, well, I'm working on my next book and it's just been a pain in the ass and haven't really done it. Uh, you know, would you want to contribute to that? And we kind of started and he would send me audio files to just sort of give some guidance and I'd help write the book. And he's, you know, I asked him, like, can we be co-authors? He said, sure. So our new book actually is probably going to release middle of next year. And it's like, oh, I'm a co-author on a real book. So I think just framing to them, if they're not too, too way ahead, like, you know, double A-list celebrity, just like, hey, how can I be helpful? Open-ended, right? And take ownership, right? Like I've already done way more than he's expected of me just because like I have that sense of initiative and, it's like the worst they can say is like, well, Jackson, like that was kind of a waste of time, but whatever. But if you take ownership and it goes, well, it's like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Like that was helpful. Let's dive into some of the, the juice now of the, the subject matter expertise, yeah. if you will. What is your, we'll start in a, in a stiff way. What is your favorite academic theory of happiness and your least favorite academic theory of happiness? My favorite, can I say my own or would that, uh, <laughs> it's been in research conferences. We'll start there. Um, so, well, okay. Well, mine is heavily inspired by several major academic theories. So, um, and it's a lot better digested visually, but I'll do my best to sort of explain some of the big theories that, that shaped it. So you start with this theory of it's Daniel Kahneman, actually. And he says that there's, and if I'm kind of like trudging through this too slowly, Lewis, feel free to speed me up because I'm a nerd. So you have Kahneman, this is where I start my theory, right? So I start with Kahneman. He says, our, our approach to happiness often as theorists is fundamentally flawed because we tend to just say like, how happy are you? 
there's really two modes of happiness. I think about how happy am I in my life versus how happy am I with my life. And it turns out those two things are actually quite different, the sort of hedonic experiential happiness and then the, the reflective happiness. And one way to think about that is let's say you go on a date and you have a great time for three hours, the date's doing super well, you're totally in love, amazing positive emotions. And at the very end, like you say something awkward and maybe you get in a little fight or whatever. So you're experiencing happiness had basically, let's say three hours of happiness, but your reflective happiness remembers the whole thing is bad. Okay, so you have these sort of two modes. So that's the first distinction I make. And you know, I picture it as like there's an individual, right, split in two. What happens, the experiential side that really matters? Well, that's basically if things like relationships, the experience of positive emotion. Um, so doing things you enjoy, right? It can be exercise. Uh, and then you also have like engagement, which is slightly different from positive emotions because it's the idea of like the flow state. Um, so it's less maybe like feeling super happy, but it's more being in the zone. Then on the reflective side, uh, what, what matters kind of stepping back, thinking about your life. And that's where you have more, I think, like meaning, sense of you know, purpose, and then growth or a sense of progress that really matter more than anything. So you've got those two sides, but that's not all. There's kind of the foundation below those, which I would call just your basic needs, right? Your kind of physiological social needs, right? Like you got to feel safe. You got to have enough money to survive. You got to have all that. So there's sort of those basic needs as the foundation. Right? Um, but then you have uh, that sort of picture, right? A foundation, then your two halves of yourself. Okay. So what does that tell you to, how do you use that? And like, like, what do you do with that theory as a person who just listened to you? Besides like try to do more things and have purpose and do more things that bring about positive emotion. Like what do you tell people from yeah. that? So, well, and that's important to keep in mind, that's sort of like a, an or, a framework to maybe organize your thinking and as a more theoretical side, organize your thinking. If you want to get into actual kind of application, I kind of have a more of a, a process for that. And so I say the first thing in Jackson's sort of theory of happiness uh, is unlearning. And so that's this idea, there's a story of a, of a professor who went to visit a Zen master and they sit down and he wants to learn from him. And so the Zen master starts pouring him a cup of tea and he just keeps pouring and pouring and tea spilling over the sides, all over running down the table, hot tea, you know, everywhere. And the professor's like, what, what, what are you doing? And he's like, this is your mind. Okay. Your cup is already full. If, how can you expect to learn anything if, you don't empty your cup. And the reason I start there is because our society uh, conditions a ton of bullshit into you, basically, about happiness. And I'd say the majority doesn't work so well. If you look around and like, oh, how happy are people? Hey, uh, maybe it's not the best. So you got to unlearn. Then it's a matter, I'd say, of changing your sort of orientation towards happiness, like understanding that it is something that you can 
improve through study and practice. And what I mean by that is I often say it's like, okay, well, everything depends upon causes and conditions, right? The reason things happen is because there's causes and conditions. Well, so if you can study and identify what are the causes and conditions of happiness, and then you actually implement them or cultivate those causes and conditions and put them into practice, then of course you can be happier. And importantly, you have a genetic set point. We all have various genetic set points. That's a fact. Positive psychology, kind of the research estimates that about 50% of our happiness is determined by genetic set point. But so that other 50%, right, that's largely a, a factor of our internal conditions and our life circumstances. So if you're walking through this with me, it's like, first, I have challenged all of this bullshit that's been beaten into me by the idiocracy, idiocrity, is that a word? The idiocy of society. And then you have this understanding of happiness, like, oh, this is something you can study and practice. And then the last step of this Right, it's kind of where my little model and theory I met meets implementation, the rubber meets the road, is you have to understand some of the science of how to get yourself to do things, which is like where my habits, oh, that thread comes in, is Lori Santos, really famous uh, happiness researcher at Yale, talks about the G.I. Joe fallacy. So G.I. Joe, the old cartoon, always said, knowing is half the battle. She's like, well, it's not. There's a huge gap between how do we know something? So how do we take that little theory I sketched and I had it there because I was uh, following or structuring my own thoughts. You know, how do we take that theory and then actually turn it into implementation, right? How we cross that gap from knowing to doing. And that's kind of habit, behavioral psychology, right? So you can look in each of these buckets that I mentioned earlier. So experiential happiness, spending time with people I love, right? So how do I get better relationships? Um, you can look at the reflective one, progress, right? And you can start to think, well, like, how can I engineer, and I use that word specifically, how can I engineer changes in my life, changes in my habits, changes in my circumstances that support uh, improvements in each of those categories like relationship, meaning, progress, uh, physical health, all those things. Let's get specific here either yourself when your own life or coaching and clients, what are some high ROI recent, let's say past two to three years, like engineered practices, engineered shifts, engineered unlearnings that have been especially rewarding? Yeah. Great question. Well, if I think about, I mean, the unlearning is almost uh, one thing because it's just like once you start to question where your beliefs come from it's sort of like oh these are uh it's like a kind of a house of cards or something or like a cloud right a cloud it looks solid and then you touch it and it's just mist it's like oh these are all uh just conditioned assumptions and narratives that i've been told by my parents by observations i mean so once you kind of just crack that little shell right it all just goes and then you can start to build from the ground up it's like well what do i want out of my life so that's it's like the seed yes, oils it's like the seed oils which you know they're bullshit another one of society's bullshit exactly. little stories so because well, once you see that little you know it you become so the habit is reading ingredient labels and asking mm -hmm. what's in things 
it's, it's the habit of interrogating previously uninterrogated aspects of your life yep. is the habit. Yeah. So you have that, but then I guess thinking something about maybe a little more granular, I think a big one is, I would say like uh, awareness. Right? So big foundational skill in my picture of happiness is kind of mind training. And this goes back to what I was saying about causes and conditions, right? It's like, you have to understand that your mind creates the universe. It sounds a little out there, but it's true, right? I mean, your mind is what filters your experience of reality. There's another little Zen story about two monks arguing and one says, oh, the, the wind is moving. And the other says, no, the flag is moving. And the Zen master says, it's your mind that moves. So our kind of state of mind is what's filtering, determining our experience of reality. So you want to cultivate mindfulness, awareness, which is basically your ability to pay attention to the present moment, to be in tune with what's going on in your internal experience. And that's a foundational skill for a lot of these other things like changing habits or having better relationships. But you say, okay, let's first, I'm going to get into mind training, cultivating awareness. Well, okay, how do I systemize and engineer a habit for that? Okay, well, I'm going to start with a very small daily meditation ritual. Uh, so I'm going to do it at this time, like first thing in my morning, I'm going to insert it into my morning routine. Right? So I know every day I get out of bed, use the bathroom, brush my teeth, uh, and then usually I'll go turn on my coffee maker. Maybe in between brushing my teeth and turning on my coffee maker, you can insert a 20-minute meditation. And then you have your little checklist you can use to keep track of it. Uh, actually, for the folks watching on YouTube, special edition, I always have my tracking sheet nearby, uh, which mine's simple, just an Excel file for key habits that I cross off. Right? But you just think like, okay, how can I systematically engineer kind of my, my life and my habits to support this uh, dimension that I want to develop? So I'd say starting with an awareness practice, some sort of meditation, very good one. Uh, and I got to touch on relationships too, if I can. Uh, I do think that, and again, there's like, there's, you can. <laughs> there's some crossover here, right? Because it's like, well, awareness actually improves your emotional intelligence and your emotional intelligence is what determines the quality of your relationships. And so, the, so there's kind of this synergistic effect sometimes, but as far as like, single variables that seem to matter more than anything else i highly recommend you guys check out robert waldinger's ted talk so you search robert waldinger ted talk or grant study ted talk basically science has figured out like the key to happiness right like the one thing is that a capital s science this or a is... lowercase s science is that is that the science or is that like proper rigorous inquiry this is in search proper of the truth rigorous inquiry from the longest running psychological study of its kind from Harvard. Um, basically they tracked starting like almost a hundred years ago, people across multiple generations from all walks of life. They just looked at this global analysis of like all these life factors, what determines quality of life. What they found is for um, how long you live and how happy you are pretty much the only statistically significant variable is relationship quality. Okay. So that's, that's one worth, focusing on so how are you how do they you define the quality of relationship yeah. well so i i don't 
to yeah. quiz you on the I full TED Talk. I know that they even... Ex- what color font does he use in the slides? No sl- <laughs> Jokes on you, there are I no slides. I know that he explained it in the TED Talk. I know, important distinction, it's not quantity necessarily, so it's not being a huge extrovert. And it's not about being it's not just romantic or something like it's not just having white it's like overall having a small group that you're very intimate with and now i tend to think there's another quote i said from a i think this was from like a famous supreme court case and they were trying to define what is pornography and the guy says i don't know how to define pornography but i know it when i see it i know when i see it <laughs> i mean i think that's what quality relationships right like i don't need to what the hell am i going to define with it right like it's pretty obvious it was amos versky and daniel kahneman's relationship that was yeah, a, that was a quality our relationship. relationship it's a quality relationship <laughs> yes it is though i do think for the uh we're very modern, right? You and I do pretty well being pretty uh, distributed, but I do think that a very important variable, this is me conjecturing, is the human in-person aspect of strong social relationship ties. I think that's like pretty key. I don't know, again, you know when you see it, but I think that maximizing or again, it's what I was saying about digital dreaming versus not digital dreaming, right? I think that a key ingredient is having close connections with deep conversations and shared positive emotion, et cetera, in the real world is probably pretty key. Not like, not that you and I play Xbox live, but not just like uh, virtual shared good moments. It's key. It's there. It's just missing certain elements of flavor. Yeah, go ahead. No matter how you yeah. square the circle. I was looking no, for an expression. This is not one that I've necessarily have a ton of research I can pull out of my pocket on and like, oh, we compared you know, the happiness effects of virtual versus in-person interaction. But what I can say is, you know, pretty general psychological consensus that you know, so much of communication happens kind of below the surface of consciousness. And I say like technological experiences are all, all ex- abstractions. They're all approximations of reality. It's like a map, right? If you have a map, the map is not the territory. Famous quote that I often think of. It's a model. It's an approximation of the territory. So when you have a Zoom interaction, as great as it is, it's like an approximation of real life experiences. You can tell that because like sometimes you don't know when to, to, you kind of hesitate. Can I talk now? Which never happens in person. You know, you can't get the body language, the chemicals and pheromones and all these things that I don't, even know about i just know they're happening um, so yeah i agree i do think that the sort of in-person is essential and you can tell i mean with covid right suicide skyrocket domestic abuse skyrockets overdose skyrockets I mean, why is that well isolation i often say the opposite of happiness is not unhappiness it's loneliness the opposite of happiness is loneliness this is like a cringe thing podcasters say that I'm just now using for the meme of saying it. But let's double tap on that. Podcasters say that, and it's like, I don't know, it's very meta. It's double meaning there, double tap. But now it's like digital words to describe a conversation. Anyway, double clicking on that. Why do you say that the opposite of happiness well, is loneliness? a lot of it goes back to that grant study I mentioned. It's... Loneliness sucks, for sure. I mean, I don't need any persuasive. Uh, I'm, I'm with you, but you yeah, might be able to elaborate well, I, in a cool I way. I can. Uh, well... 
a couple things on that. You know, the one is comes from that grant study, right, where they said you know the key to relationship or the key to happiness relationships. What they also point out is the impacts on longevity and quality of life, right? They they don't just talk about the positive boost; they talk about the negative, and they say that loneliness. I don't want to butcher the exact quote. Okay, we'll say this is approximately what he says that loneliness is basically as bad or worse for you than you know, chronic smoking or obesity, you know, right? in terms of health, quality of life. So lonely, you know, there's kind of that side of it. I think there's also something to think about from the evolutionary psychology perspective, which is, yeah, if you're like alone in nature, not connected to your tribe, you're going to die. Right. So there's this deep yearning. Um, Jonathan Haidt has a pretty interesting talk on this where he talks about humans are part ape, but also part ant. And he's getting at this sort of uh, multi-level, what do they call multi-level competition that influenced our evolution. So uh, we are evolved to prioritize our own needs and the needs of our family, right? Because that's sort of our base unit. I'm competing against these other people and these other animals. But we also evolved in multi-level competition as the group level. So this group of 100 people here versus this group of 100 people. And you can imagine that a group of 100 totally self-interested people is not going to survive compared to a group of 100 people that cares about one another. Okay, so we're wired for this tribal interconnection element just as much as we are the sort of individual self-preservation mechanism. Right. So if you don't, if, so if you're just lonely, you basically are missing half of yourself. Right. That waxed very unscientific at the end, but I think everyone will get what I'm saying. Yeah, it came full circle. One point I was thinking of that I may or may not have been trying to hold on to to not forget uh, at the expense of internalizing everything you just said, which sometimes happens. But guess what? I recorded this. Boom. Even though the recording's just an approximation. But um, with your original theory from uh, Danny, Danny K, uh, and Zoom relationships, maybe you can turn this into a substack, maybe I can. But I think that our relationship, for example, right, the in-person, it's very much like the date in terms of like the time we're on the phone virtually or on Zoom or on whatever else or texting, that is in that moment experiencing positive emotion. It's enjoyable. There's good banter. We're having fun. We're learning. We're in a flow, whatever. But then it's not that there's an awkward ending, but there is an awkward ending. And it's like, a, oh, zap, you're, you just disappeared. Like you were never here. And the reflect. So basically, I think that in the metaverse relationships, if we go for metaverse from like an academic definition of like, not like Facebook's metaverse, just like interaction, meaningful interactions happening across space and time and powered by the internet. But the in the moments is actually quite good and engaging and thorough and fulfilling, but the reflective happiness is very, very weak for, uh, like, I don't feel like I have very many friends when I reflect on like, you know, 90% of my interactions this week were mm -hmm. with my distributed friends, right? It might've been 20 people and they might've been great conversations, but it doesn't feel like I have a strong social life reflectively from that, even though in the flow of each of those conversations, I was experiencing a lot of positive emotion. That's how I would maybe characterize the downfall of an overweighted, yeah. distributed social circle in terms of yeah. happiness. Studies. I mean, I think I could 
see that on some level. And I mean, I also think, again, this is sort of beyond my pay grade, so to speak, but it's also to me a question of like, maybe how, met, how much chemicals or we'll say uh, like neurophysiological stimulation are you missing out on, right? Maybe if I were to just fly out there for this podcast for two hours and fly home, like, is it, you know, maybe it's that reflective side, but it's maybe also just like, I don't know, you just, you're got more of some sort of neurochemical boost. Um, I don't really know, but also maybe it's the framing, right? Because we're talking about reflective side here, it's a lot more uh, cognitive, right? And sort of thinking, how do I think? But maybe this is a potential reframe too, where you say like, well, no, I mean, time with my distributed friends is real time to the extent that's possible to reframe that way. Um, but yeah. Very interesting things. You've published a lot of pieces of content. Some have gained more popularity than others, which is true for all people who create content, except for people who've only published one piece of content. All of their content is at one level of popularity in that world. What Reddit post popped off the most and what was it yeah. about and why do you think I that think one resonated? I think the one that popped off the most is my dog walker story which is maybe one of my enlightenment experiences so i was i'll get remind me to get to the why after but i was driving home from class down in alabama i just bought a brand new used convertible uh, a lot of fun highly recommend for happiness mazda miata uh, early 2000s very cheap so anyway i pull into the side street by my house just as this guys stepping out with his dog and you know i kind of had to slam on the brakes he jumped back and we both kind of locked eyes in that mutual sort of like oh you like what are you like what are you doing and so he starts like mouthing shit to me like oh what are you like with throws his hands up and so i start mouthing next thing you know i just whip open my door start out after him walking towards him and just as he turns around all of a sudden i sort of just have not even me consciously i just hear myself say like hey that was my bad and we're both just kind of caught like, wait, what? Uh, I was like, yeah, I came in way too fast. Like, it was my bad. He's like, oh, it's cool. It's cool. So we just chat for a second. So I get back in my car and basically as my ass hits the seat, I'm like, what the hell just happened? What was that? And I kind of realized like, oh, that's the mind training. I've taught myself to be a good dog, basically. <laughs> That's what psychology is. It's like years and years of reflecting on you know, mindful awareness, but also the sort of social skills of like, how do I want to interact with people? You know, years and years of my habits kind of wearing away at me. You get that kind of aha, where you like a lot of days, like day to day, moment to moment, like you don't necessarily feel how much you're changing, but then something in your life happens. You're like, oh my God, I'm a totally different person. Right. That's why it's awakening, awareness, aha moment. Whoa. Okay. So that's probably the biggest story I've shared. It's just sharing that experience. And a lot of people rightfully on Reddit were like, dude, this, this freaking guy just almost killed someone. Like, why are we giving him clout for B? But it's like, I admit it. I'm a dumbass. Like, <laughs> right. Like that's the whole part of the story. Like, yeah, I won't. I should have been more careful. Uh, but anyway, so that's the story as to why it blew up. Wait, so is the moral that you think the mindfulness helped you de-escalate? Because you would have in the past been like, 
aggressive yeah, is yeah. kind of so, like the, thanks the dichotomy. Kind of tying that all together. So yeah, I mean, it's just the way I think one of the key lessons there is how progress occurs in self-development, meditation, whatever you want to call it, just general life change is kind of, uh, I've heard this, it's like falling asleep, right? You pretend to do it until it actually happens and it kind of happens slowly then all at once. Right. So that's how you can relate it to progress. And it also relates to, yeah, just the importance of kind of mind training, right? So you say, like, imagine if I hadn't had this background and this training, where does that path take me in life? Well, we get in a fight. He probably kicks my ass. Maybe I get eaten by a dog. Yeah. Or I go to jail. Dog bites right. you. And instead, it's like yeah, this exactly. nice little story. And so, yeah, key takeaways there. How does progress happen? And then the importance of kind of mindful habits. As for the why, if yeah, strategically. And why it became popular. Uh, yes, I mean, as for why. I've found that rather short, pithy, pithy, aha life stories from your personal experience that have like a very tangible aha moment is what people love, right? So it helps if you have maybe like a catchy one-line thing that summarizes it. Like my hook for that, I think, was uh, I almost killed someone walking their dog and I realized that meditation works. Like, how can you not read that? Uh, so there's the the hook and then the, yeah, short, fun, kind of personal life lesson to the extent that you can share that you're a dumb, dumbass. You know, I think people like that. Um, and yeah, just kind of maybe like raw and authentic. It's just what happened, man. And this is the life lesson here. People want to be entertained more than educated. But if you can slide in some education, right, that's nice. What is the concept of Kentucky windage? That's a good one, I think. Uh, I think that actually came up just in a conversation with my buddies in the military. Why were we talking about this? Oh, I think I was talking about how, so one of these life practices I have, again, being very neurotic, is I do a weekly sort of life debrief where I just feel like, what's a short status report? What am I thinking about? What am I working on? What are patterns I noticed? So it might be something like, oh, I ran a little too hot this week, was thinking about this, right? Like in a pretty good spot, but here are a couple things I want to work on. As I was, you know, I try to every year, every six months, review all those and tease out the common patterns, right? Because day to day, week to week, we don't necessarily know what the big picture patterns are, but this way it sort of lets you study yourself again, which is a lot of what happiness is about. So I was doing that and I noticed the common pattern of, oh, I pushed a little too hard this week, ran a little too hot, had a little too much going on. And so I kind of was explaining to my friend Joe, like, yeah, so what I've started to do is like, instead of just, you know, say like, this is my standard, I sort of have my status quo productivity and capacity level. Like, can I just aim like 20% lower or something? And he starts telling me, oh, yeah, he's like, when you're shooting, if your rifle always pulls a few inches to one side, right? Like, instead of, uh, I don't know, trying to fix it or recalibrate everything, or you just aim a couple inches to the left. And he's like, yeah, it's called Kentucky windage. So I was like, oh, how about work life Kentucky windage? Right. So instead of my tendency that I've cycled through many times before is like, yeah, I'm overdoing it a little right now, or I don't feel like I'm that effective. I'm going to redesign some incredibly elaborate personal productivity system. And then what happens? Two weeks later, you're back in the same situation. Uh, so it's not so efficient. I think it's much better to 
do this Kentucky windage idea that's a bit more qualitative and intuitive is like, I'm just going to feel out, like I'm going to aim for, I don't know, instead of like 100% maxed out 40-hour week productivity, aim for like 30 and kind of a solid pace and trusting that my subconscious tendencies will bring that back up to the to the full uh, load. Let's do a few bonus questions before we sign off. What do you think would be a better use of a random person off the streets 10 hours? 10 hours of reading Michael Singer books or 10 hours? Can of I say five and practice? five or three and seven or something? You just said it. I mean, that really is it though, but... because that's, that's a, I guess you yeah, can. Yeah. Say, say three yeah, hours that's, that's reading the, okay, Michael I mean, Singer it, yeah. on Tethered Soul and then first and then seven hours of practice, right? Because I do think that's an often overlooked thing. And like the Zen tradition is all about just sit, just sit, just meditate. But you need to have, I think, sort of some of the conceptual framework Right, that just accelerates this journey of introspection. It's like, yeah. just go to the gym for 10 hours. No, no, no instruction. Just go to the yeah. gym, look around, try stuff. Versus like, here's Bowtie Chad Ox from Twitter. He's a, a pretty elite fitness influencer. He's an Anon account. Uh, and he's, I'll give you a framework. Okay, I like that. What's the uh, the key lesson, the... 30-second version of uh, Michael Singer. Well, there's a lot of like kind of individual soul. gems in there. But I'd say the big one is de-identifying with your small self. And what I mean by that is this little character we have of like Jackson, this person who does these things and acts a certain way and dresses a certain way and has all these characteristics, getting in touch with just pure awareness below the thought stream, below the sort of stories, below all that is just this pure awareness. It's kind of like the night sky, right? Just emptiness. You have thoughts, shooting star, boom, right? So I think the key lesson is just de-identifying with this sort of ego. I call it my video game self. And uh, it's like, it's like playing an RPG in society, right? That's not you. Use just awareness, the witness that's experiencing your thoughts and your emotions and all these different phenomena. It's just pure consciousness. All right, get in touch with that. I like that. The uh, I'm going to really butcher this meme, but the there's a meme that was like two people. It's kind of like the, the Wojak universe, like the Yes Chad and like the, I don't know, Soy Man characters that are kind of like kind of the with the meme artist kind of projecting their belief about like the more ideal way of acting the soy being the less ideal and the, the yes chad being the the ideal and i feel like explaining memes sometimes destroys memes but anyway the it was like the the recent uh picture of like uh it was like some space picture that was really cool and recent and the soy man is like looking at it and being like wow a the astronomy is really cool and advanced. And then the yes chat is like, I'm the waking universe looking at itself. And uh, I feel like that was more, your answer is more of the second there. That's like, yeah, this kind of like science and progress and stuff is like this very intellectual worldview of like, you know, you as the video game character, accumulating experience, leveling up status, getting a larger house and like a bigger badge. And like, again, all the video game attributes and my speed and my strength accelerating versus the you that's just like, I am the night sky. We are the same. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. This stuff's kind of, uh, 
it's fascinating and we don't have like reason to not see it as true and i don't, I don't know if i had a point there just that was a meme that was reminded yeah, of the universe experiencing itself is often just the essential teaching i do to explain this in my seminars and things but i mean what else could you be what else are you you can intellectualize it too and think like what yeah i am the experience experiencing itself yeah I think it's what you said about shooting stars, right? Like comparing, because like, you know, where where is the origin of thought in my own mind, right? Like that kind of just base awareness and just watching things happen and, you know, being the witness to, to a shooting star and like the similarities and kind of like the fractal similarities, right? Between yeah. like, you know, the brain and the universe, et cetera. But like the shooting star analogy with a, just a random thought that you're observing, I thought that was yeah. kind of probably what sprung the, the idea and the connection to the meme. And obviously... Almost certain it was a carnivore Aurelius meme, if we're being honest on the podcast today, which we always strive to be. Let's go one more author. What is like your favorite lesson from a, we're just going to we'll butcher Capra. the name, but Free Jock Copra. So, oh man. Yeah. Let's and a book title with, to go with it once uh, you uh, name the idea. So we'll say book wise. If you're into more of the Eastern stuff, you can go Tao of Physics. If you're into more just general biology and just sort of like what is the meaning of life and stuff, Web of Life or Systems View of Life. To me, his more of a the fundamental lesson there is just a reframe of viewing everything, life, reality, whatever, in terms of systems. Right? Systems View of Life, that's like his magnum opus. And what that means is simply saying, like, we've been in the West particularly fixated on um, kind of like structure and matter is how we view things, right? These fundamental building blocks, right? And you analyze, you dissect, you break things down. You, uh, you think about, like, you know, growth and kind of quantitative side of life. It's like the whole other dimension opposite of that is instead of kind of uh, matter and structure, you have kind of pattern and process. And you think about like the more kind of qualitative, yeah. And instead of it's like the frequency, of, uh, vibration, and analyzing things, right? how do things work at the level of the system, right? Because if you chop up a human being into a bunch of parts, it's no longer a human being, right? There are certain properties that emerge at the level of the system. Okay, so just a fundamental shift in terms of viewing everything more through that lens, right? The world, the economy, the everything. And what you find is it's the essence of reality is that this is all one interconnected causal mesh, right? And that the essence of life and experience is all process and pattern. And you can apply this to economics, you apply it to life, biology, physics, whatever. Yes. That's a really interesting mental model for sure. I, 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 I've brought this up in pieces, no pun intended, on the podcast many times. It's kind of like this overall intellectual interest in kind of, mm -hmm. I would call them non-linearities, but also like inequalities and comparisons that sound equal at like a juvenile level of analysis. Right. So like a book, this is kind of the same analogy, right? But like if you took a book and you shredded it in like a thousand pieces, and then like put those pieces together in the wrong way. Like you still have the same source material, but it's no longer the same thing or kind of again with like, this is kind of the term in like probability. That's not the same term, but it's like, again, kind of all attacking similar concepts. It's like ergodicity, right? That's like Russian roulette, one person playing Russian roulette six times 
has a very different yeah. set of outcomes than six people playing Russian roulette once, even though like it's Russian roulette ping played six times. So like you're finding like what that level of specificity is required, right? Or it's, it's also very true of like drugs and dosages, right? Like a, a hundred cups of coffee in one day is very different than one cup of coffee per day for a hundred days. But if you zoom out and like choose to just summarize it as, yeah. you know, both people had a hundred cups of coffee in a hundred days, that's true. But like the outcomes are very different. Uh, so it's like where you have to be specific and like what level of detail is significant for like the specific, yeah. I guess you could call it outcome or phenomenon to be present. But yeah. that's a, a really key model, I think. That's pretty interesting in yeah. terms of, yeah, because it's like if you just disassemble yeah. a human, then they're no longer human, right? They're, they're just the sum of the parts. And again, that's what the frame of like systems thinking teaches you is like at what point is something just a part or when is the sum of the parts yeah. greater yeah, than complexity what, than just what to tie this all together guess parts. what else is an emergent property so, i like that can you guess happiness happiness emerges at the level of context. the system how do all oh, of the areas of your goodness. life fit together right if you just focus on your relationships or you just focus on one dimension right it's it's sort of this you know there's sometimes they model out this wheel with different spokes right yeah this wheel of different spokes and it's like this one's low and if they're not even the wheel doesn't spin right right but happiness is an emergent property when all the areas of your life are in this right sort of harmony and it's it's unique to you and if you totally dissect you know any component of your life right this sort of this systemic happiness it disappears (laughs) that was banger that was a banger way to tie it all together and closed out jackson where should people continue to learn from you if they're so inclined. Uh, maybe they happen to live in the right part of the country to attend an in-person learning session. Maybe they don't. Most likely they don't because that's just how probability works. Where yeah, I've are got the calls two. to action for the interested first listeners one or would viewers? be, I guess, a little more really general, we'll say, studyhappiness.blog. That's my sub stack where I put... Uh, kind of a usually month once usually monthly kind of newsletter that's just some insights or quick lessons and then one random share that's me going in depth on some vaguely happiness related topic we can uh, link to one of my favorite posts from that lewis and then the other one if you want to be a little bit more involved is happinessmajorcom slash coaching um, so again this is kind of for and it's you know you yeah, exactly. And you can go there and get in front of people making an offer. It's just a short thing on why we should work together because I don't basically want to work with idiots. Um, but if you're listening to the show, you're probably not in that category. So that's kind of that habits based work life executive coaching for uh, people who aren't yet executives. Sweet. Thank, Thank you, Jackson. Thanks, everyone. That closes out this episode with Jackson. couple of takeaways from me. First of all, what a little gem, quick little one-liner. The opposite of happiness isn't unhappiness, it's loneliness. I think that's super true. Socialize are key. We need friends. Never forget it. People that you listen to on podcasts, they might make you less lonely when you're at the gym or when you're running, but you'll be much less lonely if you ditch the podcasts and actually you know, have friends that you do stuff with. Good advice. Second takeaway is the tangible benefits of mindfulness. So, you know, med- meditation, that's kind of been the rage for however long, but it's like, why? You know, you're more productive. What does that mean? You're, you're happier. What does that mean? Uh, but I think Jackson in this conversation really portrayed a tangible benefit, which is you're slower to speak, meaning you're more thoughtful in your answers. People ask you a question, you can hold the space. You're not anxious in the sense of, 
oh, this really fast and nervous answer that I feel like so many people communicate with. And of course, I don't exclude myself from that group. A lot of the times I also behave in that way. Maybe I'm not mindful enough, but Jackson's put, you know, his website estimates it at two to 5,000 hours of mindfulness training of mental practice. And I think that really comes across in the way he communicates. So uh, good on you, Jackson. If you want to meditate and you need a reason why, maybe that slow, deliberate, intentional speech will motivate you to say, you know, maybe I'll, I'll learn something from this. I won't just become abstractly happier or abstractly more productive. Third takeaway is Jackson's advice for business. Really simple stuff. Get in front of people and make offers. He said it three or four times in a row. I just said it once. So that's six times in the podcast because maybe there's another time that we said it that I'm forgetting about. Just budgeting, rounding errors here. I really like that. You know, everyone overcomplicates it. He's like, I just, you know, I wanted to talk about this and I have friends who have friends who do things and have access to groups of people, which I think we could all find ways to find people who meet that criteria and something we want to do and just make an offer and see if people take it and use their feedback. Uh, if they say you're not qualified, if they say you're too expensive, if they say whatever they say, that's kind of something for you to go and work on to figure out how to get qualified and continuously iterate, as we say and hopefully start closing those offers and becoming, like Jackson, an expert in your own category, if that is what you want to do. That's everything from me for this episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show. If you enjoyed it, I hope that you subscribe. It's pretty easy to subscribe. Just press the subscribe button. And if you do that, you'll be the first to know about our next episode, which at the pace we're going should be roughly one week from now. DMs are always open if you have feedback. Otherwise, we will see you then. Bye-bye.